The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Well, good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Let's uh, go before the Lord this morning in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way you have worked in our lives, the way you have brought us here together to worship you this morning. God, I pray that as we just sing, that we would have no other master, that instead we would seek to honor you with our lives. God, that we would be like the the saint who was mentioned earlier who left a testimony of love for others and love for you. And God, I pray that as we reflect on your word this morning, that you would prepare our hearts. God, that we would be eager to learn and grow and apply your word. God, that we would live in such a way that we are living in light of the gospel, in light of your truth. God, I pray that as we worship you this morning, that you would just touch our hearts and help us to not be merely hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And I thank you for this opportunity and pray your blessing upon it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we have done so, we found Paul addressing some specific issues. We've been dealing a lot with the issue of marriage as he deals with marriage in, this, in these uh, middle chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we'll continue on that topic of marriage. But the, the focus of his message is not just, here's how you are called to live, but it's instead, here's how you are called to live in light of the Gospel. In light of what Jesus has done for you, in light of who you are in Christ, because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are forever changed, you are forever connected, you are now part of His body, that now you must live differently that the Gospel must affect your life. And we've talked about things like sexual immorality, we've talked about sex within marriage, and now he gives specific instructions to believers who are asking questions about marriage now that they are followers of Jesus. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8-16. through 16. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet... If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So today as we continue our journey into the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul continues, as I mentioned, this topic on this topic of marriage. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is a topic of study that the church would do well to focus on. For the way we view marriage and live out those views has far-reaching implications on our personal spiritual growth as well as our witness to the world around us. In fact, there are a few decisions that have such a Huge impact as marriage in our lives. Marriage, having kids, there are some decisions that have a huge, huge impact. Far greater than which house do I buy, which car do I drive, which pair of 
shoes do I buy, though that's a very important decision. As you, if you know me, you know that's a very important decision that has to be made. Right? Marriage is very important and it has these far-reaching implications. Yet studying this topic is not always easy. For much of the Bible's teaching on this topic is counter-cultural. Or more accurately, much of the culture's view of marriage is counter-biblical. You see, the Bible describes marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And the culture says that this bond between, it's a bond between individuals, not necessarily of the opposite sex, but instead it's just a bond between individuals, maybe of the same sex, that can easily be broken. The Bible teaches that marriage is designed to demonstrate Christ's love for humanity. The culture teaches that marriage is all about humanity's love for oneself. The culture teaches that marriage should make you happy, while the Bible, the Bible teaches that marriage should make you holy. So because of today's text, because so much of it runs against the grain of what culture teaches, it is very important that we open our Bibles today, but also that we open our hearts today to what God's Word says. And that we don't have a desire to conform God's Word to our lifestyle, but instead to conform our lifestyle to God's Word. So as I've mentioned before, the church in Corinth, in writing this letter, Paul is addressing some very specific questions or concerns that were brought to him in a previous letter. That's why in 1 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. He says, concerning these things you wrote, I'm now going to address these specific issues that you brought to me. So in essence, what we have is one half of a phone conversation. We're hearing Paul's response, but we're not really hearing all of the questions they were asking. So while we don't know all of the details of what the Corinthians asked in their letter or letters, we can piece together a great deal of information based on how Paul responds. For example, because today's text provides specific instructions regarding whether or not believers should seek a change in their marital status, it seems pretty obvious that one of the questions being asked was this. They were asking, now that I'm a Christian, how does that affect my life in relation to marriage? They were saying, now that I'm a Christian, what must I do about my marriage situation? And such a question can be, frankly, encouraging and discouraging, depending on the heart in which it's asked. See, some in Corinth may have thought, having been given this gift of faith, I have a desire to honor Jesus as my Lord. And I want to honor Him in all that I say and do. And I know that He has called me to submit to Him. Therefore, Paul, how do we best please the Lord? And that would be encouraging. right? That's an encouraging question. On the other hand, some may have been asking the question in this way. Now that I'm a Christian and called to obey God, what can I get away with? Right? How, in other words, where exactly is the line between obedience and disobedience? We don't know the heart motive of those asking the question. But I can tell you this, that far too often I've been personally guilty of making the Bible out to be nothing more than a rule book for life. I know sometimes I want to know where that line is between obedience and disobedience. And sometimes I'll step up to the line. And I want to know where is that line. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And the problem with the Pharisees is they said, well, we don't want to get too close to that line. So we'll put a line back here. And we'll draw a line here. We'll just draw a line in the sand. And we won't cross this line for fear that if we do, we'll cross that line. And then they said, well, what happens if we cross this line? We better back up and we better draw a line right here so I don't cross this line. Because if I cross this line, I might cross that line. And then they said, you know what? What happens if we cross? So we better back up. And they kept backing up and drawing more lines. And eventually they had no idea what God was calling them to. It became all about rules and regulations. Just the other day I saw a sign that said, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. And I thought, well that's cute. But that's not primarily what the Bible is all about. It's not what the Bible is all about at all. The Bible is far more than a rule book. The Bible is far more than basic instructions. 
The Bible instead is a love story. It's a book detailing how God, from the beginning of time, has been demonstrating His love and calling a people to Himself. That God is making people His. He's calling them out to love them, to serve Him. You see, Scripture plainly teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That even in the Old Testament, that we have all these Old Testament laws and regulations, but the purpose of those regulations is to show us our need for a Savior. Not that we can somehow live in such a way that we're living in a way that's pleasing to God, but instead that we cannot live by God's perfect standard. Instead, we need a Savior who will save us from our sin. You see, and that's what Scripture is all about. It's all pointing toward Jesus and the Gospel and the fact that Christ would come and die on the cross taking the punishment that we deserved because God loves us. He wants us to worship Him. So while it's encouraging that some would rightly understand that God does have authority over our lives, and that His will is revealed in the Bible. The Bible does contain basic instructions. But it's also discouraging that far too often the Bible is just seen as only that. Basic instructions. The Bible is often thought of as a rule book, and God is seen as a hard taskmaster, and not a loving Father. And therefore the result is that the question that often gets asked is, can I? Can I do such and such as a Christian, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, instead of, should I? In other words, we often ask, does the Bible prohibit me from going to the bar, or buying a new car, or reading certain books, or whatever the question is? Does the Bible prohibit me from doing this? When instead, we should be asking, is it profitable for me to do these things? Is this going to draw me closer to Him? Is this going to grow me in my Christian walk? Or is it going to hinder my Christian walk? And ultimately, is God going to be glorified in this? So it's my desire that as we approach this text, we do so with the Gospel in mind. We do so remembering the love that God has shown us in His Son Jesus. And that the question we ask is not, What rules does the Bible put forward regarding marriage? But instead, how can I honor this amazing, grace-giving God, Creator of the universe, Father who loves me, how can I honor Him regardless of my marital status? So in looking at today's text, it's apparent that some were asking, now that I've become a Christian, does that mean that I should change my marital status? We already saw a couple of weeks ago that uh, some in Corinth were beginning to question marriage and Paul said, singleness is good. It's good to be single. That God has called some people to be single and that there's a certain freedom that comes with that. And he said that marriage is good. Marriage is good because it it paints a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. It helps us grow spiritually. It gives us a helper to get through life. And he said, and ultimately God is the giver of good gifts. That some people are called to a life of singleness and some people are called to a life of marriage. But God is the giver of good gifts. But now Paul specifically addresses the question regarding those who were saved after they were married. Paul says, apparently the Corinthians were saying, well, wait a minute. What happens if I got married before I was saved? Or what happens if I got divorced before I was saved? Remember, everyone in Corinth was a first generation Christian. They they didn't grow up in the church. They had no cultural background of Christianity. And having been saved out of a pagan lifestyle because the church didn't exist, Having been saved out of this pagan lifestyle, especially like the lifestyle of Corinth, meant that there was a dramatic contrast between their lives before Christ and their lives after Christ. Yet they were still living with the consequences of some of those previous 
choices. I remember when I first became a believer. Became a believer at 19. And um, at 19 years old, I hadn't had a ton of time to make bad choices, but I'd had enough time to make some really bad choices, right? So I was living with the consequences of some of those choices. My life had dramatically changed. I was heading this direction. God picked me up. He turned me, started pointing me in the other direction. I repented of my sin. I started following God. But I still had all these things in my life that were consequences of my previous actions. And such was the same with those in Corinth. So the unmarried in Corinth were apparently asking, should I or can I now get married? And those who were married were asking, should I or can I stay married? So what follows are three instructions. Paul actually says in verses 17 through 20, he kind of, he, there's a transition statement in 17 through 20 where he, he reflects on this topic of marriage and points toward um, uh, their role in society. But he says this, he says, only as the Lord has assigned to each one as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. His point is, God called you in this position. And yes, there are consequences. Yes, there are ramifications. But you can't change those things in your past. You can't go back and fix everything. That that's what grace is all about. That God saved you. God in His grace didn't say, clean up your act, make things right, and then I'll save you. Instead, He said, I'm going to save you even in the midst of the mess that you're in. So when they're asking these questions, Paul gives three instructions. The first point in our sermon outline you never thought we'd get there, we're finally there. The first point in your sermon outline is, number one, instructions for those who are no longer married. Instructions for those who are no longer married. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In these verses, Paul gives instructions to both widows and those who are divorced. The widows we can clearly see in this text. For the word is appropriately translated. It means widows, and it's right there in our English Bibles. Yet the term divorced is not here. It's not here in English. But it's clearly there because Paul is referring to them when he mentions the unmarried. The Greek, the Greek word for unmarried is agamos. Ah, which is a negative prefix, and, and uh, gamos, which refers to marriage. It's where we get our English word polygamy, or monogamy, refers to marriage. So he's saying, A, negative, not married. So it should be understood as demarried, if there was such a word in English. That's what he's really saying. He's saying, and to those who are demarried, and those who are widows. This word only appears four times in all of, the, all of the New Testament. And all four times are in this chapter. And Paul makes it clear here in 1 Corinthians 7 that he's not referring to those who have never been married. So we read it in English, and the danger is that we might read it, we might say, unmarried. Well, he's talking about singles. Well, I want to assure you, he's talking about more than just singles here. We know this first of all because in verses 10-11, through 11, he makes it clear. Chapter 7, verses 10-11. through 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. See, she's not single. She was never unmarried. She, was never, uh, she, she has been married. She was not a virgin. Instead, he says, if she leaves her husband, she's now demarried. She's now divorced. She's now unmarried. The text makes it clear. The woman is clearly a divorced woman. Secondly, we know that Paul is not speaking to those who have never been married because he addresses them later. In verses 25 through 28, he says this Now, concerning virgins, a clear indication of those who have never been married. 
Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So clearly he's not just talking about women who are virgins, but he's talking about both men and women. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. He goes on to say, yet there's some consequences of being married as well. There's some challenges with being married. But he addresses those who have never been married in verses 25 through 28. So here, when he talks about being demarried, he is clearly talking about those who are divorced. So Paul is addressing those who are no longer married. Those who were once married, but are now divorced. And he's addressing those who were once married, and their spouse has now died. And the instruction that he gives is this. He says, it is good for them to remain even as I. Demarried, right? That Paul was, either his, his wife left because he became a Christian, or his wife died. Most scholars would say his wife died. I'm really not sure why, other than maybe it seems more holy. I don't know as though I would agree with that. That Paul certainly couldn't control his wife's response to him becoming a follower of Jesus. But nonetheless, he says it's, it's important that they understand it's good for them to remain, even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says if you're in this situation, it is good for you to remain single. We saw a couple of weeks ago, singleness is good. Singleness provides an opportunity to commit someone's entire life to the Lord in ways that would otherwise be impossible. Consider Paul's missionary journeys. He travels the known world preaching the Gospel. And because he wasn't married, he didn't concern himself with paying for the kids' college tuition. Right? He wasn't concerned with, how do I set aside all this money to pay for their schooling? And he wasn't concerned about, how do I get home by 6 o'clock for dinner? How do I make it all the way to Ephesus and get back home so I can be there for dinner? You see, instead, he was free to serve the Lord in a way that married people are not. Not that married people don't serve the Lord in a great and mighty way, but it's in a different way. Paul was given this freedom. And he reminds them that that, that's good. But he also reminds them that marriage is good too. He says, if the sexual temptation proves to be too great, it would be better to marry than to stay single and fall into sin. So you remember, marriage, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is indeed an effective tool in the battle against immorality. So in essence, what Paul is saying here is, don't think that you're somehow more holy by staying single. That it is good for you to stay single, but don't think that you're somehow more holy. Some indeed are given that gift, but marriage is a gift as well. So having seen instructions for those who are no longer married, now we look at number two, instructions for those who are married to believers. Number two, instructions for those who are married to believers. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. He says this, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. By the way, he's saying, it's not just me who's saying this, but Jesus said this during His earthly ministry. And later on he says, he says, not the Lord, but I. Meaning, the Lord didn't say this in His earthly ministry, but clearly this is still inspired. He goes on later and says, and I think I have the Spirit of God in me. Right? Kind of sarcastically, much like the Corinthians who accuse, who. who uh, thought they had knowledge. He said, I think I too have some knowledge from God. So he's not saying in any way that he's not inspired when he speaks or that the words of Jesus are more important. He's merely saying, Jesus taught this during His earthly ministry. He says, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord Himself, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. So these instructions apply to those who are married to believers. He doesn't say that in these verses. But we know this 
Because in the next section, he speaks specifically to those who are married to unbelievers. He says, now to the rest who are married to unbelievers, I have this specific instruction. But first, what we have here is instructions to those who are married to believers. And what instructions does he give to those who are married to another believer? He says, stay married. Stay married. He quickly addresses any misunderstanding of what he just said in verses 8 and 9. He said, I want them to remain as, as I am. If they're divorced, then they, it's good for them to remain as I. Or if they're widowed, to remain as I. But then he says, but wait a minute. That doesn't mean that if you're married to a believer, you should go out and seek a divorce so you can be like me. Right? You don't divorce your wife so you can go on a missionary journey. That's not the point. So his statements should be in no way construed as support for divorce. Look at verses. Uh, look at Matthew 19, verses uh, 3 through 9 with me. Here we see where Jesus taught on this topic of marriage. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, clearly he said, uh, no, it's, a man should not divorce his wife. And then they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it, was not, it has not been this way. It was not intended to be this way. That it is not the way God intended it to happen. Marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment between a husband and a wife. And he goes on, verse 9, And I say to you that whoever divorces his, divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. See, the text is clear. Jesus says, anyone, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And Jesus states that the only grounds for pursuing a divorce is sexual immorality, adultery. And even then, it's permissible, but not commanded. He doesn't say if your wife commits sexual immorality or if your husband commits sexual immorality, get rid of them quick. He says it's permitted, but it's not commanded. Consider the book of Hosea. Consider, consider uh, the story of Hosea with Gomer, right? who really is a, a picture of us, God's covenant people, and our relationship with God. That uh, uh, Gomer is a prostitute who continues to defile herself to pursue men other than her husband, that continues to trample underfoot the grace of her husband, and yet her husband loves her and takes her back and cherishes her. If that's not a picture of our relationship with God, I don't know what is. That day after day after day, I get up, the alarm goes off, and I hit the thing and I go, stupid alarm, do I have to get up early, this early again this morning? Instead of saying, praise God, another day of life, another day of breath, I get to serve Him, the grace and love He's shown me. Instead, I'm bitter from the moment my eyes open, before my feet even hit the floor. I can find all that is wrong with the world and not praise God. I can begin to praise other things. My belly becomes my God. I can worship food more than God. You know, I have a, we have a rule, Kim and I, and our rule is this, that I've said this before, no Bible, no breakfast. That ultimately we have to, we have to submit to God and we have to realize that we 
follow after things other than Him all the time. By His grace, He continues to love us, to cherish us, to take us back. That He doesn't say, you know, you committed adultery. I'm done with you. I am so done. This is it. This is the last straw. Instead, He says, I love you. My grace is enough. My grace is enough again and again and again. But Jesus makes it clear. He states that sexual immorality, adultery, is the only grounds for pursuing a divorce. And even then, it's permissible, but not necessarily a commandment. Now, just a side note, there is one other case where divorce is permissible, as we'll see in a bit in our text. And that is when an unbeliever leaves. In that case, it's a passive act of letting the divorce take place. Whereas Jesus makes it clear that this is an active act. That adultery is the only grounds for actively initiating a divorce. It's the only time when that's permissible. He says there is also a a permissible instance where if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave, let them leave. And we'll look at that in a second. Yet under Roman law, right when this letter was written to the Corinthians, both men and women could initiate a divorce for any reason. It was the ancient equivalent of no-fault divorce or irreconcilable differences. So Paul says to them, he says, stay married. See, Jesus taught that there's only one case where filing for a divorce is permissible. The case of adultery. So Paul says, stay married. And he goes on to say, if you're in a situation where you have divorced a fellow believer, you have one option. Stay married while you seek reconciliation. That's why I will not perform a marriage ceremony for someone who is divorced from another believer, even if they didn't initiate the divorce. Let me try to help you understand what I'm saying. So if somebody comes to me, a person comes to me, and they, uh, their, their spouse divorced them, and they've been divorced for three years, five years, and they say, I found this other person and I want to get married. Even if they didn't initiate the divorce, even if they contested the divorce against their believing spouse, I would say I cannot perform this marriage ceremony. I cannot officiate a wedding where you marry someone else. But, however, that's if that other person, there's evidence of them being a believer. See, the problem is that oftentimes people, they call themselves believers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're... I'm talking about a true believer. If they, because I do not want to be the person who will put the nail in the coffin of reconciliation. Instead, what I would say to that individual is, you need to stay single. You need to remain unmarried and pursue reconciliation with your spouse as long as reconciliation is possible. Now, if that spouse gets married, gets remarried, reconciliation is no longer possible. Then I would say, you're now free to marry. If you're divorced and your spouse has married someone else, you are now free to remarry, for reconciliation cannot happen. See, I don't want to be the guy who puts the nail in that coffin of reconciliation. Instead, I believe that reconciliation is what Scripture teaches here. So having seen, number one, instructions for those who are no longer married, he says singleness is good. And marriage is good too. That marriage is good because it provides an opportunity. It's better to be married than to burn with passion. It's a protection against sexual immorality. And then he gives instructions for those who are married to believers. He says if you're married to a believer, stay married. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're divorced, seek reconciliation. And I know that's hard. You say, but what, what pastor, what happens if... My spouse leaves me. They continue to hold fast to the idea that they're a Christian. And it's 20 years or 30 years. Then I say, pray for grace. Pray for God's mercy. And I don't say that lightly. I say you need to pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation that Jesus doesn't give up on us and go, well, it's been three weeks. He's persistent in his sin. I've forgiven him so many times. Instead, I say pursue reconciliation as long as reconciliation is possible. 
So now let's look to the third point in our sermon outline. The third point is instructions for those who are married to an unbeliever. Look at verses 12 through 16 with me. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if anyone, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? To say that the unbelieving spouse and children are sanctified here in this text doesn't mean that they are saved. It does not mean that someone who is married to a believer will ride their coattails to heaven. In fact, Paul says right within this text, there's no guarantee that they will be saved. He says just the opposite. He says, you don't know what's going to happen. Instead, the term sanctified is used in the broader sense. It means to set apart. Unbelieving family members are blessed. They're set apart because of their connection to believing family members. As God blesses a believer, so too does the whole family reap some of those benefits. Even more so, a believing family member naturally points their family to God. This, by the way, happens with spouses who are both believers, too. For example, in my own life, my wife's walk encourages in me a closer walk. That as she walks with God, it encourages me to walk closer with God. There's a certain level of accountability. There's a certain level of sharpening that exists, and my walk encourages her to walk closer with God. That there are things that in the darkness of night, when nobody's watching, somebody might watch on TV, but when your spouse is sitting on the sofa next to you, you say, their walk's sharpening my walk. And I've got to turn the channel. And that works both ways. That when one gets up early in the morning to read this book, to pray, that the other says, I can't lay here in bed all day. Right? That I feel this level of accountability. I feel this level of sharpening. That that's what happens. That we have a positive influence over each other. This, by the way, can also be seen in raising children. Well, we as believers can't ensure the salvation of our children. We sanctify them. We set them apart by teaching them the things of the Lord at home. Just a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, the question was asked, have you ever invited an unbeliever to church? And after Sunday school, somebody approached me and said, I do that every week. I invite my kids. In fact, I tell them they have to go to church. You see, our children are not saved because they grow up in a Christian home. And these children, are they're not believers yet. But the point is that they're being sanctified, they're being set apart, they're being shown the things of the Lord. They're not saved because they grow up in a Christian home, but they're exposed to the Gospel and the things of God. By having believing parents, they're set apart. Children are sanctified. And in the same way, an unbelieving spouse is exposed to the Gospel day in and day out when they're married to a believer. So Paul says, if they'll stay, stay. Don't seek a divorce. Apparently some in Corinth were probably concerned. They were concerned that, does this mean that somehow I'm going to be defiled? That, as, that now as a believer, I'm called to be set apart from the world. And I'm married. I'm yoked to this person who's not yours. What does this mean? And Paul says, don't worry. He says, they're sanctified. They're set apart. That there's a positive influence, a role that you have to play. As long as they'll stay, stay. And point them to the Gospel. That doesn't mean get up every morning and preach and like stand over the bed. Repent, you wicked. It means live the Gospel. Point them to Christ. He says, don't seek a divorce. However, Paul says, if they leave, you're not under bondage. Let them leave. 
thus meaning you're free to remarry. So the Bible gives only two grounds for divorce. Number one, sexual immorality, adultery. And number two, an unbeliever leaving. Those are the two grounds for divorce in Scripture. And that when divorce happens within those grounds, you're free to remarry. And in all other instances, divorce is a sin. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what Scripture teaches. It's not me standing here saying this. We would do well to simply accept what the Scripture teaches. Not try to contort it to fit the circumstances of our lives or our culture. We look around us and we see the divorce rate. The divorce rate within the church, some statisticians say, is higher within the church than it is in the world. It used to be, oh, it's on level, it's the same. Most statisticians would actually say it's higher within the church than it is outside of the church, the divorce rate. Now, I want to I preface that, or I want to underscore that with some truth here. And the, the reality is that that may be true, but when you ask people, do you regularly read Scripture together, pray together, share meals together? That when, do you regularly go to church together? And that when couples do those things together, the divorce rate plummets. That the world says, oh, the church, they're just as bad as we are. Well, let's figure out who the church is before we answer that question. But, that being said, the church has embraced worldly philosophy. The church looks, and sometimes out of love, we look at the, the world around us and we see divorce after divorce. We see serial marriages. We see serial polygamy. It's not polygamy as in a man is married to, one, to multiple wives, but that he's married to multiple wives, one after the other after the other. And women are married to multiple husbands, one after the other after the other. And God says that's not the way it's intended to be. You see, in all other circumstances other than sexual immorality and an unbeliever leaving, divorce is a sin. That's what Scripture teaches. And we would do well to simply accept what Scripture teaches. Now that being said, I want to be bold, as bold as I can be in saying that. That being said, we can't change the past. We cannot turn back the clock on time, so to speak. That just as the Corinthian believers came to Christ with baggage. They came to Christ with circumstances that were in their past that they couldn't change, just as I came to Christ with circumstances that I couldn't change. At 19 years old, so too did the Corinthian believers, and so too do people today. And sometimes people come to Christ, and even in Christ, they make horrible decisions. I make them all the time. I continue to sin against my Lord. And I pray for grace, pray for mercy, I pray for His forgiveness, and praise Him that He is there. His grace and His mercy are there. So we are called to live in light of the grace and mercy He's shown us through His Son. But that being said, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. We don't say, you know, I, I committed murder, now I'm a murderer. Might as well keep on going. Instead, we say, no, no. May I never presume upon grace. We expect grace. I get up to the only reason I get up every day that I can get up and live is knowing that it's not dependent on me, but that grace is coming my way. Grace came my way yesterday. Grace is coming my way today. I can live in that grace. But I don't presume upon it. I don't say, therefore... I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. Instead, I say, God's so gracious. I'm going to live the way He wants me to live. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. Instead, let's confess our sin. Let's agree with God and call it what God calls it, sin, and repent of it. Turn away from our old lifestyle and seek to honor Him today. So in review... Paul gives us instructions, or gives instructions for those who are no longer married. He says, stay single if you can. But if you can't, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He gives instructions for those who are married to believers. He says, stay married. Or if you're divorced, be reconciled to your believing spouse. And number three, he gives instructions for those who are married to an unbeliever. He says, stay married. If your spouse will, stay married and point them to the Lord, but if they leave, you have no control over that. Let them leave. So the question is, 
Why? Why is marriage so important anyway? Doesn't God want us to be happy? What about grace? And I started this by saying, the Bible's not just a book of rules. So you might say, so why are you giving us all of these rules? Well, first off, we need to understand what marriage is. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. We talked about sex. Sex is painting a picture. It's an act of worship whereby we show our forever connectedness with our spouse and it points to our forever connectedness with Christ. Communion. Communion is painting a picture that we'll celebrate communion on uh, Thursday night, on Maundy Thursday. And communion is painting a picture of what Christ did for us on the cross. It pictures, it paints a picture of His body which was broken for us. His blood which was shed for us. Last week, we painted a picture with baptism. We painted a picture of Christ being buried and risen from the dead. We painted a picture of what God did in Mark as He buried the old Mark and raised the new Mark to newness of life. And in the same way, marriage paints a picture of the Gospel. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. We'll close with that scripture. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. See, Paul in Ephesians says, this marriage relationship points to the relationship of Christ and His bride, the church. That He loves His church. That He gave Himself up for her. That He washes her with the water of the Word. That He's growing her. He's caring for her. He's nurturing her. And as we paint that picture, it's important that we paint an accurate picture. That's grace. Marriage is grace. It points us back to the Gospel. Living out what God intended for us in marriage is not designed to make us miserable, but it is designed to make us holy. It's designed to make us remember His grace offered to us through the Gospel. That as I live out my relationship with my wife, I should see it as a picture of His relationship with me, a member of His body. See, marriage is not only a picture of the Gospel that points us to the Gospel, but it's also a picture that points an unbelieving world to the Gospel. And we would do well to paint that picture well, to remember what marriage represents. And paint that picture just like baptism is important, just like communion is important, just like sex is important, just like offering is important. All those things paint a picture as we saw last week. And in the same way, our marriage relationships paint a picture to the world. They paint a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Let's paint that picture well. So marriage is an opportunity to provide for each other physically, emotionally. It's an opportunity to help each other grow spiritually. It's an opportunity to raise godly offspring, to serve someone else in humility, all while glorifying God and pointing to the Gospel. So the question is, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually 
and corporately apply all of this to our lives? Well, number one, rejoice in the gospel. We need to rejoice in the gospel and what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. If you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to come talk to Bill or T or I after the service. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to lay down your life and follow Him. If you are a follower of Jesus, live in light of the Gospel. Rejoice in the Gospel. Praise God for His grace that we've messed up, but His grace is sufficient. So we rejoice in the Gospel. Number two, we let our marriages point to the Gospel. We let our marriages point both us as individuals to the Gospel, to remember what Christ has done for us, so that we may carry on day by day, but also our culture. That instead of standing on the street corner screaming at the world about how they've got marriage all wrong, that we would get our, marriage, our marriages right. That we would say, marriage is this picture and I must paint this picture well. I've messed up in the past. I can't change the past. But by God's grace, I can live for today and I can paint this picture well. And number three, we can encourage one another in gospel living. We hold each other accountable. That we help each other live out this picture. And in so doing, I think we need to admonish the unruly. That there are times when we act unruly and we need to be admonished. That we encourage the faint-hearted. That there are times in marriage when you're just faint-hearted. And you need, to, you need to be encouraged. You say, persevere, persevere. God's grace is enough. And we need to help the weak. That there are many in this room who have years of marriage uh, experience that can point to Kim and I, that can point Bill and I in the right direction and say, persevere, persevere, let me help you. And then there are some who have been married a very short time who can help those who have been married a very long time and say, I can help you, let me help you. Let me show you what I'm learning. Let me show you how I'm living this out. Because it's important. This is a, a picture that we're painting of Christ's relationship to the church. Let's paint it well. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. I thank You that though we can't change the past, that Your grace is sufficient. And God, that You call us in the midst of life's messes, but You give us clear instructions for living, for living out the Gospel from this day forward. God, help us to be obedient. Help us to accept Your Word, to live in light of Your Word, to call sin, sin, and not be so eager to look at the world around us and see how they need to repent so much as how we need to repent and live in light of what You've called us to do. God, I pray for the marriages in this church. I pray for those who are single. I pray for those who are divorced. God, that You just work mightily in our lives to make us more like Your Son, Jesus. And that You'd encourage us day by day as we journey through this life together as a body. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.